Good afternoon and welcome to the um, Analyst Roundtable for the Capital Inc. Conference. Uh, my name is Bob Bush. I'm a Senior Vice President and Director of Closed End Fund Product at Calamos. Uh, with me, I'm honored to have uh, Mariana Bush, uh, CFA and Research Director of Closed End Funds and ETPs. Uh, we are not related in case you're interested, but we, do, uh, we are kindred spirits in appreciation of the Closed End Fund business. Um, I'm also have a, a pleasure of joining uh, us today is Michael Jabara, Managing Director and Head of ETFs and Closed End Fund Research at Morgan Stanley. So um, we'll get right into it. What, what I'm going to do is, given that this is an analyst roundtable, I'm going to sort of set the, 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 the table, if you will, as sort of a backdrop of what went on in 2020, because I think in many respects it serves as, as sort of a microcosm of what can go on in the closed end fund space, uh, both with respect to secondary market and an IPO market. So at the beginning of this year, we saw uh, really a continuation of, of the bull market that we saw in 2019. We saw good trading. Uh, we saw IPOs getting done, uh, tight discounts, many premiums out there. Uh, many folks might have said that valuations were kind of peaking then. This is before COVID obviously came in. That uh, was clearly a catalyst to the market. Um, which as we saw in February, we saw a steep sell-off. And in many cases, some of these funds went down to 20 plus discounts when before that they were trading um, slight discounts or even, even close to NAVs. Um, then quickly the market sort of rebounded uh, and we finished the end of the first quarter in March with discounts narrowing quite a bit from where they were sort of two weeks or three weeks earlier. So we then had a revitalization of the uh, re revitalization of the closed end fund IPO market. Uh, deals were getting done, discounts were narrowing. Um, we had some issues with respect to um, uh, some of the liquidity, and we're going to get into that in a minute. Um, but I think you know one of the things that's happened is that you've, although you've seen repair in the closed end fund space, um, the discounts are still a little bit wider than where they were at the beginning of the year. So albeit in many cases you've seen the NAVs of funds uh, have more than outperformed relative to their indices and they've certainly more than outperformed relative to their stock prices, but the market just hasn't quite caught up there. So, um, and I think there's sort of some lessons to be learned from that, uh, that as well, because clearly this was a, a traumatic event for the markets in the first quarter and clearly the closed end fund buyer, which is predominantly retail, got out very quickly and I think is sort of having a tepid response coming back. So um, again, what we're gonna try to do is, is present some thoughts based on this that we think that hopefully be helpful for you as sort of we assess the market today. So getting into it with that backdrop, um, one of the issues that has come up is the, uh, the concern of liquidity uh, in the closed end fund space. And that's not always a primary consideration, but when you think in terms of sort of the sell-off that we experienced uh, in the first quarter and then the market recovery going, going forward, um, obviously, that's something that the analyst community is, is concerned about. So, Mariana, I'll start off with you. You know, when you're advising clients um, about getting involved in closed-end funds or a particular closed-end fund, how important really is liquidity in the daily float of a fund when considering buying it and also eventually selling it? It is important. And uh, you have to be a wise closed-end fund trader or a wise closed end fund buyer and seller. And there are some better practices, best practices to um, do it right. Do it in a way that you do achieve best execution. Uh, in fact, uh, I was listening to some of the comments 
earlier from an ETF panel, and they are similar, very similar. Uh, avoid market orders, uh, instead use limit orders, avoid the open, avoid the closed. Um, one additional um, best practice that we typically suggest is try to look at the average daily volume of the closed end fund and try to for your position to be to not exceed um, ten percent of that. Um, you want to get in kind of easily, but then if for some reason you need to sell the position, you want to make sure that there's going to be um, plenty of liquidity. Uh, for that, the size of that, given the size of that uh, position, to be able to sell with still very good execution. Um, so there are some um, simple best practices of trading close end funds that we typically um, mention to our um, financial uh, uh, advisors and, and their clients. Thanks. And Michael, what are your thoughts on that? What, sure. what do you look at in the Morgan Stanley platform? When yeah, I mean, I, you know, just to add, and I would echo a lot of Mariana's comments, but, you know, liquidity is, has always been an issue in the, the, the closed end fund space or as, as long as I've been involved in it. So um, it, I would say it's, it's nothing, um, you know, new. I think one of the things that, uh, you know, we, we see a lot of our financial advisors as well as their clients is you actually diversify a lot of times for liquidity purposes, right? So it's not diversification uh, so much based on the movements and the correlations of the underlying asset classes, it's liquidity diversification. So as an example, you may own, instead of owning two or three municipal closed end funds, you may own 10, right? Just to get that diversification. So I think that's certainly one thing, um, you know, that, that, that uh, uh, we see. Um, you know, I think the, the, trading best practices are exactly what Mariana said. And I think it's something that uh, investors need to be extremely cognizant of because it, it, it's, it's very important. Um, and it typically becomes an issue uh, when you don't want it to be an issue, right? It's when you're looking to sell when everyone else is panicking. It's not so much when you're getting in, it's when you need, to, when you need or want to get out, right? So it's, it's one of these, it's sort of asymmetric risks. And you know, I can tell you also just from our standpoint, like if I take a step back and think about it from, from an analyst perspective, um, you know, given the lack of liquidity and the size of a lot of the funds in the closed end fund space, um, you know, when we look to pick up coverage, um, unfortunately, we're not focusing on names that have market caps less than say 500 million, right? Because uh, arguably, um, you know, if we were to pick up coverage of one of these smaller names, um, you know, we can uh, impact or influence the price maybe more than we want, given the size of, uh, of our sales force. And I'm sure Mariana sees the same thing. Um, so liquidity, I would say, is uh, front and center, uh, first of all, from an execution standpoint, but also from an analyst standpoint, uh, it's something that we are laser focused on. Right. You make a great point. There are a lot of smaller funds out there that are great performers. But again, you have to make sure if you want exposure to that particular asset class, you know, maybe you take some of that and maybe you get involved in some, another fund that has maybe a little bit more liquidity. So just in the concept, so we've seen some fund mergers, obviously, over the last few years, many of them in the muni space. Muni's constitute about 25% of the assets under management in the closed-end fund business. So, um, and there has been funds in, in many of the, of the, the bigger closed-end asset managers where there's been some duplication. So in the best interest of shareholders, if there's been consolidation in many cases to reduce costs. 
which is great for shareholders. Has there been any in your in your mind any type of uh, issues though with with the general liquidity, or has it been a good thing that you now have bigger funds, Mariana? Uh, generally, we favor mergers for sure. Uh, in most cases, they tend to be mergers of equals, um, and over time, as, as these close end funds are IPO'd, are launched, usually maybe the second fund is similar, but um, a little bit of a difference. And maybe the third fund has an additional difference. But over time, as, as time goes, goes by and um, the portfolios change, the portfolios have tended to converge into being much more similar portfolios. So when that is the case, we, um, we, we do love seeing those announcements when there's two or three funds that are very, very similar. They may not have been that similar at their inception, but now they are very similar, um, that the managers announce mergers. Uh, that's great. Bob, you mentioned the, the cost, the benefit uh, on cost. Uh, the benefit on, on liquidity is, is uh, great as well. And think of it, now you have a much bigger fund, there's probably, you're widening also the number of investors that uh, can invest in a much larger, more liquid fund. So there's so many um, benefits to, to mergers. Uh, right. we, we like seeing that, those announcements. Great, and Mike, uh, uh, that's helpful. And Mike, from your perspective, I'm just curious, uh, we've had some institutional, more institutional buyers come into the market. Um, in fact, many of the funds that we've seen recently are actually um, buy closed end funds as part of their portfolios. Um, what are your thoughts on that with respect to giving liquidity to the market? Yeah, and I, you know, I, be, before I sort of jump to that question, I'll, I'll add it, and, and us and I agree exactly what Mariana said, right, we, we are, uh, certainly in favor of, um, you know, for, for mergers, given the reasons that she stated. Um, you know, one thing though that, not that's frustrating, but, uh, you know, because of uh, all the uh, merger activity, um, the number of funds has been shrinking, right? And that, you know, as an analyst, it gives you fewer and fewer things to look at, right? Which, which creates a whole nother issue. Um, so that's one of, I guess, the byproducts of all these mergers that they're, you know, the, 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 the the closed-end market's been um, shrinking as far as numbers go, right, or, or sheer number of products. Um, but as far as the uh, your question around institutional um, participation, uh, you know, we certainly have seen a, a, an uptake in, in that. And I think, you know, there's this narrative out there that, um, you know, with more institutional participation, liquidity should pick up and we'll have buyers that are willing to step in uh, in situations like we get, you know, this past March. And, you know, I think that that narrative, um, you know, I, I'm not sure, I don't, I don't want to say it didn't play out, but at the end of the day, uh, what happened is closed end fund liquidity froze up just like it always does, right? And, and the, 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 the uh, narrative about there being more institutional participation resulting in more liquidity, um, you know, I'm not sure that was a, a, a true narrative, right? It, it turned out to be, um, you know, false to some extent. And liquidities, uh, excuse me, and closed end fund liquidity seized up just like it it it, it always do, does. Now you could make the case that occurred across almost any asset class or any type of security, right? This past March, uh, but nonetheless, I don't think we necessarily have seen the funds um, trade any better um, because of uh, because of this notion that there's more institutional participation. Helpful. Although there is there is a uh, I would say a good reason 
for the lack of liquidity. And uh, I would say that given that the majority of investors are still retail, um, it is my understanding that they tend to just buy and hold and forget about the funds. So they're not trading um, for speculative reasons. They just buy, they enjoy the fund, and they just hold them for many, many years. So that is one kind of maybe positive reason um, for there to be low liquidity. Um, and I think it's, it's just a matter of making sure that close-end fund investors are aware of that. Every once in a while, we still see kind of a new investor to closed-end funds, and they're not paying attention to liquidity. Nobody told them about liquidity or the lack thereof. And we see these price changes, these price increases or price decreases that don't make sense at all. Uh, and we think it's most likely just somebody putting in a huge order compared to the the typical liquidity of that fund. Yeah. So we try to educate our financial advisors. Uh, and I know Mike does the same thing. And, and all the, uh, I mean, Bob, from Calmo's perspective, I, I'm, I'm sure everybody just does the same thing in terms of trying to educate so that you optimize um, execution. It's all about education. Could, couldn't agree more. Uh, turning or turning uh, the page a little bit here on the next topic. So. Obviously, when you had a wide swing in price in NAV over the course of 2020, uh, as a research analyst, one of the things you folks look at is obviously valuation metrics. Um, there are a number of ways you can look at it. Um, I've always looked at the Z-score uh, as sort of a, a way that, that we will assess uh, 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 the value of a, of a given fund, um, how it's trading relative to its historical premium discount history. And in some cases, you had some of these funds trading more than two standard deviations um, below what they typically do, which you know can signal a fantastic buying opportunity. Um, Marianne, I just want to get your sense of sort of what, what you what you use when you want to assess evaluation when you have these conversations with your with your clients and your advisors. Do you use a Z-score? Are there other absolute or relative uh, methods that you that you do to assess? Um, we're aware of Z-scores, but um, I'll confess that we don't pay that much attention to them. Uh, one of the weaknesses is if the typical discount is very narrow, then the Z-score is, is di more difficult to, to keep track of. Uh, instead, what we do is we look at the, the absolute discount. Uh, and clearly, the wider it is, the more interesting the fund looks. And here, I should highlight the fact that while discounts and valuations are a factor that we look at, it's certainly not the only one. And it is not the most dominant one either, uh, because there are a number of other factors that we think investors need to pay attention to. So if we don't just recommend closed-end funds just because the discount is wide. So again, back to the absolute discount, double-digit discounts usually catch our attentions for sure. Uh, in addition to that, we will look at uh, the discounts on a relative basis and relative to its own history, uh, specifically the 12 month average, um, relative to the peer group. And there we try to understand why is a fund trading at a much wider discount than the peer group. Often, 
the answer is, well, maybe it has a higher NAV distribution rate, uh, but there may be a few other reasons. Uh, and finally, the, the, the last relative comparison is to the closed end fund universe. Um, and here it tends to be more about certain asset classes sometimes trading richer uh, or cheaper relative to the, um, the entire closed end fund universe. That's great. Mike, I'll, I'll weave this into this question that we got in. I'll sort of weave it into, um, into your part of this. So, and again, I think it, it talks about valuation. And one of, the, one of the, the questions is basically around a distribution cut. Um, what are your thoughts on trading around that? Now, in the context, most of the time when a distribution cut is announced, that stock will uh, be impacted by it. And it may take a fund that was trading at a premium, send it to a discount, or if it was a discount, to, to, a, to a further discount. So um, again, in the context of answering that question and addressing the issue, um, please share your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, to, to similar to what Mariana said, it's evaluation is something we look at, but it is not the only thing we look at. Um, you know, we certainly spend a lot of time looking at uh, yield and sustainability of yield, uh, given that the typical closed end fund buyer is seeking income, right? So we'll spend you know, uh, you know, probably more time on that front. But, um, you know, as far as premiums and discounts go, um, it's absolute, it's relative, it's, um, you know, it's relative to the entire closed end fund universe, it's relative to that particular asset class. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like there are funds that have traded at five to 10% premiums for years, right? And vice versa, there are funds that just perpetually trade at 10% discounts too, right? So just because a fund is trading at a premium doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's expensive and vice versa. Just because a fund's trading at a discount doesn't necessarily mean it's cheap, right? Now, all else equal, yes, um, but there are so many other, uh, you know, moving parts to it. Um, as far as your uh, question around, uh, you know, trading around uh, dividend cuts and, and looking at how valuation and, and how a fund reacts, you know, that is, uh, something uh, certainly that we look at. Um, you know, there have been a number of times, uh, you know, in, in history and, you know, since I've been covering closed end funds where, you know, a, a, a great time to buy a fund is, is right after um, a dividend cut, uh, right after, you know, assuming it does negatively impact the price, right? And also assuming that you can get your arms around the reasons why they cut the distribution, right? And, and that you can feel comfortable going forward that it could be sustainable. So, um, you know, there, there's no question about it that, um, you know, that, that certainly is, is something uh, that, that we look at. Um, you know, I, I would say maybe this is, uh, you know, just from my standpoint, um, I feel like it used to be a little bit easier around some of these things in the past. Like, it, it does feel as though the, you know, there are, I don't know if there are more eyes on the closed end fund market, but trading around some of these things doesn't necessarily seem as easy as it was going back, say, you know, relative like a decade ago. Um, and I don't know whether the closed end fund buyers are smarter today than they were in the past, or there's more information available. Um, but, you know, some of these, um, you know, certainly some of these, I don't want to say tricks, right? But um, some of these things that, or, or, or rules of thumb, maybe that we've looked at in the past, um, you know, they're not as straightforward today. Right. So here's You know, a, another, uh, if I may add to what Mike just said, uh, that it's not, uh, that it used to be easier. I, I think I would agree with that. Uh, and maybe one of those, the, the things that have changed over the years and, and decades actually, um, is the fact that in the past, 
there was there were more many more um, fixed income funds um, I would say and with fixed income funds uh, internally we call them kind of the science funds because you can keep track of the net investment income and compare it to the dividend figure out the earnings rate and have a much better idea of is it is it under earning over earning is it likely to cut the dividend or or, uh, or cut it um, cut or, or increase the dividend so those are the science funds are the easier ones <laughs> in our opinion. It's the, what we call the artsy funds or even the artsy science funds where there is, there may be either no or a component of fixed income where there is a predictable recurring cash flow. Um, it, but they have a, 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 an appreciation component, um, likely, equity funds, funds with much more equity, maybe covered calls, where there you cannot look at net investment income, or at least you can, but it's not going to tell you much. And so that's where we need to focus uh, more on the NAV distribution rate and on these artsy science funds, NAV distribution rate and the earnings rate, uh, knowing that it may not be a 100% earnings rate. So it, it is has become more uh, complicated because there's more managed distributions and it, it's not um, just income or fixed income portfolios. That's a good point because we, we get a lot of questions to that at Calamos, you know, about what's your, what's your uni balance uh, or net investment right. income balance. And if it's a fund that has um, multiple components to pay its distribution, uh, unlike a muni fund, um, it, it's not as applicable. Right, Mike? I'm sure you hear that too at, at, at Morgan Stanley as well, right? It's Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, folks are constantly looking for the uni balances, um, you know, the equity funds. And, you know, um, they're clearly a lot less relevant on equity. And even on the taxable fixed income side, right. a lot of times they're less relevant. I mean, it's re we really only focus on the uni balances on the, the, the muni side. Um, and even there, there's some, some leeway. So, um, you know, I, I think you're right, like the, the fixed income funds, especially on the tax-free side, it's more of a science. But when you, on the other end of the spectrum, as far as uh, equity income funds go, it, it's a lot more subjective and, and definitely more of an art uh, when we're analyzing it. And that, that's, that's challenging, right? Because, um, you know, there are more moving parts. And, you know, I think in the past, especially um, you know, when, when we're looking at the muni funds and, you know, we, we're able to do it, like you can get a pretty good feel when a fund's going to cut its distribution, right? I mean, it, it's not um, rocket science, but on the equity side, it's, it's trickier. Sure. Capital appreciation. I mean, income is much easier to forecast than capital appreciation. And so mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a challenge. Um, and on keeping track, if I may add one more thing to what sure. Mike just said, uh, keeping track, there are a number of uh, managers who do just a fabulous job in providing uh, earnings information, net investment income information, actually on a monthly basis. So those are much easier to keep track very, very closely. Uh, a few others may do it quarterly. Uh, if nothing is done, then at least we have the annual and the semi-annual report to go go by. by but the major uh, closed-end fund managers are, are do a great job, very shareholder-friendly, I would say, and uh, publish for everyone to see, not just for the closed-end fund analysts, for everyone to see the, um, the earnings, net investment income that can be tracked more closely. And the down and dirty way, and this is down and dirty, but the way to sort of easily assess a fund is what's the NAV doing? If after distributions, the NAV is holding up or even up, then the fund's in a good spot. If after distributions, that NAV is down, um, that's a challenge. Um, but anyway, move, moving on. Um, so one of the great things about the closed end fund space is that it's, 
you, you're able to get a lot of creativity as to the types of products that you produce with top managers and, 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 and top advisors. Um, one of the things that we've seen, obviously, is with the resurgence of the closed-end fund market, now that the, the load, uh, or actually all offering costs, are being picked up by the advisor, um, that's obviously propelled the IPO market, which is, which is a great thing for shareholders and advisors uh, and issuers alike. Um, you're seeing a whole bunch of different ingredients out there now. So you're talking, you're seeing uh, municipals, uh, municipal income mixed in with taxable capital gains. You're seeing the access to privates. Uh, the BlackRock's doing munis with the, with the Naveen, as I mentioned, asset allocation funds. Um, you, we've all been doing this a while. Um, and obviously one of the great things about the space is you, what you try to do is provide the investors with access to either management or disciplines that they may not be able to get um, in the mutual fund or the ETF space. So, Mariana, I, just if you could, please comment on sort of what we're seeing today in the IPO market and how that's sort of relevant to sort of the macroeconomic thinking at this point in time. Um, you're right. There has been an evolution. And in fact, uh, on the first panel this morning, uh, there was more discussion on IPOs and Jonathan Isaac from uh, Eaton Vance told us about the evolution, how we've gone uh, since 2000. 13, during the taper tantrum, I mean, there were no IPOs and things have, as a consequence of that, evolved substantially. Um, I would say, well, you mentioned the, the concessions. Uh, another one is the terms, uh, which have evolved since then. Uh, 2015, Nuveen was the, the pioneer in that. They, they I wouldn't say started, but they resumed and, and brought back the, the terms. Back then in 15, it was, I think, only a couple of funds uh, at a three-year term and five-year term. Since then, every year, the, the length of the term, the period, has been uh, increasing. So from three and five, then they stretched to seven years, uh, then gradually to um, 12. And I think this year, we've even seen a few 15 ones. 15-year uh, terms. So um, I, I, I remember seeing that back in right after the financial crisis in 2008, when IPOs restarted very slowly in, in the spring of 2009. They were very, very plain vanilla, no, um, no invest, uh, below investment grade risk, no leverage, and just gradually over time, they added a little bit of leverage, they added more leverage, they added full leverage, they added below investment grade. So we're seeing, uh, at least in terms of the term, we're, uh, I would say we're seeing this uh, similar evolution. Privates, you mentioned privates, that's something else that we're seeing. There was always a little bit of that, uh, not always, but sometimes there was some, some element of privates. Um, it seems like there's a bit more, up to 25% of the portfolio, which in a way, I mean, I mean, this is the structure to do that. Um, the closed-end fund, you don't have to worry about inflows and outflows, inopportune inflows and outflows. So this is the structure um, better than anything else, better than an open-end fund, than an ETF, even interval fund, a, a place where you can uh, invest and, and hold much less liquid securities. Great. Thank you. Um, Mike, your, your, your thoughts on that, please? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, we, we certainly have seen the space evolve to, to, to Mariana's point, and, it, and it, it always does sort of, I don't want to say coming out of a crisis, right, but coming out of some type of downdraft, whether it be you know, the GSE or the taper tantrum or even this, you know, past March, uh, 
you know, the asset managers, um, you know, as well as broker dealers, they have a, a, a unique way of getting together and, 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 you know, crafting things to sell, right, to, uh, to, 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 to uh, you know, retail investors. And, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, the, the, the one big takeaway that I have is there's no question about it. Uh, the funds are more, uh, arguably more, at least on the cover, are more, are more shareholder friendly today, maybe than they've been in the past, which I think is a, you know, is a um, huge plus. It's um, the, certainly, you know, we've seen some combination of asset classes as an analyst, um, I've never really loved that, right? I, I like the portfolios that are clean, right? And um, because they're they're a little bit more straightforward to analyze, number one. Um, number <laughs> two, a lot of them, quite frankly, don't seem to trade as well over time um, because they don't have a natural spot in the in, in the universe, right? In other words, like where do you put them? If if it's a fund mixing munis with with taxable bonds, do you list it with? Munis in the in the in your coverage universe, you list on the taxable side, right? Um, where do you put that's it? That's a conundrum. That's a conundrum. Morningstar is always dealing yeah. with, right? <laughs> and, and inevitably, um, you know, if if you're stuck, right, you just throw it in in, in other category, right? <laughs> and that other category has such a negative connotation, um, it just never gets the eyes that it should. So. There are all these sort of nuances, um, arguably that, that means something maybe to an analyst, but the end investor, it can mean something to them, but quite frankly, probably doesn't. Right. That's true. Yeah. It's, it, it's, if it's a pure exposure, it's just an easier story to tell. Um, right. So when the story is too complicated, maybe a financial advisor or a client is going to get confused and say, okay, skip that. Let's uh, give me a pure, easy exposure that I can understand right away. Right. Right. So what a question that, that, that may mean that some of these actually trade much cheaper. So they may be more interesting opportunities as well. So there's a there's a good side to it as well. Right, right. So so real quick before we move on to the next topic, question came in regarding the MLP space. I'm gonna give each of you 30 seconds. Will the MLP space survive? Will these funds survive? And what's what'll happen next? Go ahead, Mariana. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Oh my goodness. Um well, the MLP closed end funds during uh, March, obviously they experienced uh, tremendous volatility. You add leverage to that, the NAVs fell even further. And uh, when that happens, you are at greater risk of having to delever to avoid violating any asset coverage ratios. So that happened to a few of them. And in fact, in a few cases, they decided to liquidate, which I think was a, a, a tough, but maybe the right decision. Um, and so the question to me is MLPs and leverage, does that go together? Because this was not the first time we saw that. We saw that back in 2015 as well. Michael? Yeah, and I, I would just sort of to take it one step further, um, you know, and we've already started to see it. Um, you know, you, you, you'll see the, uh, the, the portfolios themselves broaden out, right? And whereby they'll own, uh, you know, more C corporations rather than be pure MLP plays, right? So that, that's, that's one change and we already have started to see it. Um, you know, arguably some may move uh, away from, um, you know, strictly uh, energy pipelines, maybe start to incorporate some um, investments, maybe more correlated or tied to ESG, right? And once again, we're already starting to uh, see it. So I think what will probably wind up happening is the space uh, broadens out um, it's not strictly energy pipelines. Um, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the uh, 
with the structure of the funds themselves, right? Um, uh, you know, whether or not they transform from C-Corps to RICs, um, there are some nuances on the structure and taxation side. And, you know, arguably, if you broaden out the, um, you know, the, 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 the portfolios, uh, you can uh, probably change the, uh, the structure of the fund, uh, assuming it's viable from a, a, a legal or regulatory standpoint. So I think, you know, net net, I don't think the MLP uh, closed end fund universe or space will look like it has the last decade or 15 years. I think it's uh, going to change. It'll, the, the funds will, will just based on the amount of deleveraging that occurred, they will not be able to get back to the levels where they were initially at. There's just not a chance for that. Um, and, um, you know, I think you certainly will see a, a, a broadening of their investments um, as the asset managers look uh, basically for survival. Clearly, clearly great value there. Um, what, one last point is sort of the IPO process. Um, obviously, in this, in this pre-post-COVID virtual world that we're in, um, the IPOs that are getting done, um, not through the traditional uh, roadshow um, way, but certainly through the virtual format. Now, from an analyst perspective, I'm just curious, obviously, that's sort of, this is a little bit of a different animal. I mean, sales and education in many ways is a contact sport. But um, what does that mean? And I'll ask each of you, I'll start with you, Mariana. What does that mean? What are the added um, responsibilities, pressures, if you will, on the research analysts to make sure that the fund is properly communicated to, to the end buyer, given that we're in this virtual world? Um, you mean the analyst role during the IPO process? Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, um, well, I don't know about two, Mike, but we're, we're oh, or okay, yeah. <laughs> because we're not we're not allowed to be part of the process. I'm, right, not, I'm, sorry. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm, Mike uh, Mike has the same uh, limitations. Um, and uh, what what we do is we we look at them, and uh, if any of them uh, look particularly interesting. Um, then we'll definitely want to be uh, make sure that we focus on on them. And uh, if there's an opportunity to uh, to pick up coverage, to recommend it, to focus them, uh, I think we 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 certainly will. Michael, I would say just from a um, you know, and this is just maybe just I'll I'll broaden the question out, and um, you know, just as far as like our process in COVID times, right? I mean, quite frankly. Um, you know, it hasn't changed a whole lot. The one thing that has changed is we can't get on site um, and, and visit with managers, right? So that, you know, what inevitably what winds up happening because of that. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily unique to close end funds. It's the same way with our mutual fund and SMA businesses. You tend to uh, cover and work with asset managers that you're familiar with, right? It, it becomes more difficult to take a risk on a uh, covering a smaller manager that you have no history with, that you don't know uh, anything about their operation because you can't get on site and kick the tires. Um, so that creates this, um, just like a lot of things that we're seeing, um, it creates this issue where, um, you know, the, the big get bigger, right? And, and I guess we're seeing that across, you know, not just financial uh, metrics or financial services, but you're seeing that across, you know, almost every sector, right? So um, unfortunately, um, it, it, it creates a, a challenge uh, for smaller firms or startup firms. It, it's a challenging, I think, um, I'm speaking as a former underwriter and, and now as an issuer of 
the closed end mm -hmm. funds. It's, it's become much more difficult, much more challenging. The hurdles are higher. Um, and I will say this to the audience, to get one of these done, um, the research community, the investment bank, the sales management of the firms, there is an enormous amount of due diligence and tire kicking that gets into this, both with respect to the product, the performance of past products, the, uh, the expertise of the portfolio team, the ability of the, of the distribution companies to distribute it and defend it in secondary. So I, I second that. Uh, it's, it's only going to get more difficult. I think the bigger firms will be the ones that ultimately um, will prosper because of this. It'll be more difficult for the smaller ones to sort of prove themselves, if you will. Um, maybe that results into sub-advisories. I don't know. In the day, that's how some of the smaller firms got in the close-end fund businesses that they work with the bigger firms that didn't have some of the expertise that was maybe necessary or required or sought after. That said, some of these bigger firms have everything you need right now, so they don't have to sub-advise. So to be continued. So we have about five minutes left. Sorry, Mary. If I, just very briefly on uh, something interesting that uh, Mike said about uh, COVID and not being able to visit. Uh, having said that, uh, we're still doing on site by phone, <laughs> by Zoom if necessary. So at least what is already under coverage, we continue to um, to to monitor and, uh, and and do the right due diligence. Of course, it's just not easy. It's just uh, it's adopting to this environment in, in all sorts of ways. I thought I would apply it to, to what you folks do. So we've got about three or four minutes left. So I'm going to ask sort of the key takeaways. Again, this is the overarching theme here being what we learned in 2020. Did it reinforce what we thought we knew or did it give us new ideas? Um, I'll start out with you, Mariana. What are the key takeaways that you can get out of what went on in 2020 to help you advise your clients going forward? Um, maybe take a step back and really look at the big, big picture. And the first question, uh, before the question is, should I buy this close and fund or should I buy this discount or should I buy this yield? It's, do I want to be in this asset class? That should be the number one question. Uh, assuming the answer is yes, um, then uh, the next question, in my opinion, would be, okay, do I consider a closed end fund? Do I fully understand all the risks and the benefits that this structure will, will give me, uh, including leveraged, including the discounts widening and narrowing uh, much more so, um, the liquidity we talked about. Um, assuming the answer is, okay, yes, I can, I can, I, I, want these benefits and I can tolerate these risks, um, then you go into the, well, which, which one? Um, and uh, then you can start looking at, okay, within this peer group, which is the close end fund that, uh, that I should favor. Um, so that should be the order. Sometimes people would just look at, oh, this is a big discount. Uh, let me buy it. Like, and they're totally missing all the framework around it. That, that is much more important often. Course. Michael, your thoughts? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the way I would answer it is, um, you know, uh, this, you know, drawdown and, and kind of a, a snap back, um, you know, arguably uh, it, it looks, maybe it happened faster, right? Just like the rest of, uh, just like other securities out there, right? But, um, you know, uh, the, the closed end fund market, I would say, um, traded the way it historically has, right? In other words, this time was was arguably no different except for the speed that it happened, but that wasn't closed-end fund unique. That was um, unique to this sort of crisis, right? So, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're not seeing like a different paradigm in the, in the closed-end 
fund space than we've seen over the last two decades, right? So that, that's one thing. And then, the, you know, the second thing, and I'll leave you given the, 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 the time constraints we have here is, um, you know, the, the, the next sort of or a potential catalyst is as we come close to the end, move into the fourth quarter tax law selling, right? Um, you have a lot of funds and, and folks that are underwater. And um, now granted, there are a lot of areas that you can sell for tax loss purposes. Um, uh, not, you know, outside of the closed-end fund space, but inevitably, you know, that will be, um, you know, a, a tax loss season is, is coming up and it's, it's, it's probably coming sooner rather than later. In other words, it'll probably start earlier this year. Yeah, I might. And um, again, the question is, when we have one minute left, I'll just say, will that trigger a, a down, irregardless of what goes on in the election and the general markets, if we do have that, will that trigger a sell-off in the space? Mariana, real quick. Uh, who knows, it may be 2018 again. Uh, but then I would say the savvy closed-end fund investors, those seasoned, I'm not going to say old, but the seasoned who have seen all these cycles before, uh, they're going to be the ones watching, waiting, and then just uh, taking advantage of, of the, uh, the situation. Michael, real quick. Yeah, I mean, I, it's to, to Mariana's point, who knows, right? I think it's it's going to be driven a lot by what's going on just in the market in general. But, um, you know, I think there are certainly folks that are uh, have their eyes open, right, and uh, have looked at, you know, historical patterns. And if you go by history, this should be a big year for tax law selling. But who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Terrific. Well, that's all the time we have, folks. It's, uh, it's 1140, 12.46 in the East, and that's when we're ending. So, again... Mariana, thank you very much. Michael, thanks very much. And uh, we appreciate your participation on this call. We hope it's been helpful. Have a thank good you. rest of the conference. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Thank you, everyone.